Because we think if we have an agent, then all of a sudden we're going to book and then we're going to become a working actor. And in the back of my head, that's what I wanted. And I was like, is that what I really want? Or do I just want to be able to be creative? Like it's always the sides of our brain going, what do we really want when we do something? What's the real ultimate goal? But I think I'm being really honest, which is very vulnerable to me. And to be honest to say, I really wanted an agent, but yet I also really want to be creative. And I think I'm, I've, I missed out on that part of it because I was so like this part of my brain is doing the same thing over and over going, well, this time I'll get an agent. This time it'll change my career. Then I'll be a movie star. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta stop this. It's not working and it's ruining it. Welcome to the Hollywood Hustle podcast, where we tell the stories and struggles of producers, writers, actors, and more, and how they survived the city of dreams, Los Angeles. My name is Michael Lutheran, one of your co-hosts, and welcome to episode 53, where we will be sitting down with actress and filmmaker Alexandra Boylan. In act one, you're going to hear about how her journey started in Boston, Massachusetts, and the steps she took to move to Los Angeles, and then how hard it was for her to leave home and as well as stay, and then you're going to hear about how Alexandra decided to stop waiting for the right audition and threw herself into producing a play with her best friend, but how through it all she's focused so much and too much on what was right for the industry versus what was right for her as a creative. Make sure to stick around after the interview to hear mine and Daniel's takeaways from the interview. We also update you on our own personal journeys, and then we take a question sent in to us from a listener. Uh, this listener is based in Chicago, and the question regards a work situation for an aspiring stage manager. I also invite a couple of my own personal friends who are very knowledgeable of stage management to give some of their answers as well. We then share with you our own hustle support statements that will help get you through this week and get you closer, hopefully, towards your goal, towards that creative goal that you're working so hard towards. But now let's jump to our Act 1 interview with Alexandra Boylan. Let the hustle begin. Our guest today moved to L.A. from Georgetown, Massachusetts, when she was 19 years old, with dreams of being in front of a camera and enjoying the rare successes of Hollywood. Well, 10 years later, she began to find those dreams coming true in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's right. Proof that the Hollywood hustle can be found anywhere in the world. For Alexandra Boylan, that hustle paid off when she produced her first film, a suspense horror film, Home Sweet Home, for $10,000 in New Mexico. Since then, she's produced and sold several films, including two faith-based films, Wish for Christmas and Catching Faith. She has worked with Megan Fox, created a live-action game app called Your Pizza Adventure, and wrote several articles for the very popular site, Ms. in the Biz. She recently released a memoir slash advice book called Create Your Own Career in Hollywood, Advice from a Struggling Actress Who Became a Successful Producer. And her newest film, which she produced with Ms. in the Biz founder and producing partner Helena Santos for only $800, At Your Own Risk, premieres next month at the Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. She has an IMDb list of credits too long to read here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce actor, producer, and writer, Miss Alexandra Boylan. Thank you. Wow, that was awesome. Can you just every morning when I wake up say that to me? Just really, just be uh, good morning, Miss. Grew up in Georgetown, Massachusetts, then moved here yeah, when you were nineteen. It's always nice to hear it all in a row. It's really it's uh, it's it's one of those, it's one of my favorite things to do because it's always not, I like I've always thought myself as being a good hype man. 
And so I always felt like that would be my part in any kind of like boy band would just be the guys like, get up, get up, get up, everybody get up. That's like me. I'm always the one getting everyone up. So it's really nice when other people get to do it for me. <laughs> so thank you. No problem. So I, I want to start with this. I, I read an interview and I'm, I'm paraphrasing your comment, but you said that people are always asking to take you out to coffee uh, to get advice from you. But now you're so busy, you don't have time anymore. So you wrote the book so that you can skip the coffee and just get the advice. So my first question is, can we go get some coffee? <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. So let's let's start from the beginning as everybody's, you know, starts out in their origin story. Tell us about your family life and your home life in Georgetown and and what that was like growing up. Uh, well, I grew up in an awesome town called Georgetown and my father's a minister and I know that people give me like a wide eye when they hear that. I was like, no, my dad's cool. <laughs> like I had the coolest dad ever. I mean, I moved to LA at 19. He was super supportive. So I grew up, even though I was in a faith-based home, I had a really awesome upbringing of my parents were traveled all the time. I went to Turkey, Greece, Scotland, and Paris when I was 14. I went on missions trips. I went, I just traveled a lot. My parents were really into traveling and they were really into in inspiring, encouraging us that we can do anything we want with our life. And I always felt like I was meant for to do great things. And they encouraged that. I think that does come from your upbringing of whether or not like, you know, I always thought I'd never be a nine to five working a job. I'd always be doing something big and something that would impact the world. And a lot of that is just my upbringing. And then um, my parents were really wonderful. I, I loved acting from a very young age. I wanted to be a singer, but I can't sing. So that dream got crushed when I went to audition for my first school play and I went in and started singing and they were just like, First off, you're completely tone deaf. Second off, that's just not going to work. And then I was like, oh, so I guess I'm not going to be like a big singer like Amy Grant. And then, but then they gave me a part in the school play. They said, you're a good actress, so we'll give you a part, but we'll take all the music out. And then I swear from the second my, hit, my foot hit the stage, I was like, I love this. I'm at home. Yeah. Like that's how I always I felt when I got on stage. This is my home. It. I loved it. I loved playing make-believe. I mean, i Grew up playing make-believe in the woods in Massachusetts, and I never stopped, and I still haven't. So. Nice. <laughs> so what's your first memory of the arts and creativity and maybe, like, having an imagination? I would say probably, like, my bro I had two older brothers, and we would just always – we had tree ha a tree house, and we were always in the backyard making up Star Wars stories. And I, um, I loved that I had older brothers who let me kind of play Star Wars with them. And so I think just – like, I swear, when you're a kid, which is what's so great about kids, is that their imagination is so wild. You tell them, if I told you that that tree is a, uh, is a castle, I would believe that. And that's where I started just imagining that, okay, this is the wild, wild west. And now it's like a castle and I've got to get up there and save somebody. And, and in all of them, you're a Jedi, right? Of course, I'm <laughs> yeah. a Jedi. And um, I was never the damsel in distress. I was always ready to save the person. And um, so I think that, that that just that, you know, having that we didn't have phones. We didn't have what we have nowadays. So as kids, you really had to create your own playground. Mm -hmm. And we did that. We, we, we made it all up. And then when I started, I think I acted in my father's church and, but really it was doing plays in my high school. And then I was like, well, I live near Boston and my, my older brother, Andrew was very encouraging of it. And he was like, you should start auditioning in Boston. And, you know, I was like, I don't even have a driver's license. How do I get there? <laughs> but I'll do it. And then I had to convince my dad or my brother to my mother to drive me into auditions, <laughs> which they did. <laughs> so what were your first roles in Georgetown before you moved to Los Angeles? Well, I booked a bunch of Emerson student projects. Like I did a lot of short films. And then my first, big break 
which was huge. I was six, I was 17 years old and I booked a lead role in a movie called Drainiac, All right. which is Brett Piper's horror movie. He's a big B horror director. So this was like a big deal. Like when I met with him, he said that he had auditioned Sandra Bullock for a movie. And I was oh, wow. like, well, I'm going to be the next Sandra Bullock. So now you have me. So <laughs> Congratulations. You just found you just found Move over, Sandra. <laughs> Alexandra is here. This year. So I booked that and we shot that in a um, like old abandoned house in New Hampshire. And it's crazy. Like he really does have like a cult following and it came out. It even came out with a 10 year special DVD edition oh. with a commentary. And um, when I moved to LA, people were like, you're in Draniac. And I was like, you know, and I, my parents were so supportive. They let me miss school to shoot the movie. And I was going to school like I'm in the lead in a horror movie. I'm awesome. <laughs> and um, that was probably like my my first um I mean, I did a lot of shorts too. I was really, I was really blessed to book a lot of my first, very first audition was for the role of Lolita in Jeremy Irons film. I was 14 years old and I went to a screen test in Boston and I got through and I got kind of far on it. I don't know if my parents would have let, I don't think they knew what it was. So I always wonder to this day, like if I booked that part, would my parents have let me play Lolita? Uh, which Dominic Swain ended up cast, uh, getting casted. But um, that was my very first audition and it was pretty intimidating to go into that room and as a 14 year old, but you're also kind of so young. You don't even know. I'm just right. like, they were like, eat an apple and say these words. And I was like, okay. But they loved my voice. Cause I've ever, I have always had a raspy voice. So I think they really loved that. I was like, like this 14 year old with this very seductive rest. I'm like, yeah, hello. hello. I could do this part. My parents will probably say no, but mm -hmm. give it to me anyway. <laughs> They'll never know. We just They'll won't never know. It's just going to be a national we movie. Tell them. They'll so, never yeah. Hear about it. so yeah, that's, I did a bunch of, I was just always shooting stuff in Boston before I moved here. Do you remember a role that you had, especially in school, where you played maybe a, a part that was a lot different than who you are? Well, yeah, my first my first role was Mrs. May Peterson in Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> She's like an 80-year-old woman. I always played the old angry men in high school. But I loved it. I love being yeah. the old lady. Like, she had the best part. Sometimes those side characters are mm -hmm. the best oh, roles. Yeah. And then I played Hetty LaRue in um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And that was really fun. So I went from being an old lady to getting to be really pretty and dressed up. And then I played the Baroness Schrader in The Sound of Music, which all, all the parts. Franz. Ah, yeah. All the parts that didn't have music. <laughs> That's where they would give me a role. But, Same here. <laughs> so, all, I mean, and when you're doing adult plays as kids, you're always really playing something that's. Mm -hmm completely outside of you because you're not I was not a baroness who was trying to um take over my husband from their children from the sound of music so what? yeah that no. was I was 16 I was uh, all right in my side life that's what I was doing <laughs> Don't 16 year old baroness I was <laughs> so uh when did the idea of moving to Los Angeles kind of come about and how did that my shake out my whole life, I wanted to move to Los Angeles. We came to California when I was young, like 12 or 13. I went to Universal Studios. I did the Hollywood Walk of Fame. My parents took, because we had traveled a lot in Europe and all of us kids were always begging our parents for a trip to California. And like, it's really funny. You look back and my parents taking us to Turkey and Greece and Paris, but we didn't really appreciate that at, you know, 14. You're like, I just want to go to Los Angeles, California and go to Florida and go sit on the beach. So we finally talked to our parents and it bring us to California. And I think I just, I loved California. It just, 
it seemed like a dream and it seemed like where you had to go. And so I think I was always had my mind set on that. I mean, even when I told my parents at 19, hey, guess what, mom and dad, I'm moving to Los Angeles. They were like, mm -hmm. like I told, I mean, I remember vividly sitting down with my parents at the kitchen table. I'm the youngest of four. So all my siblings are gone. And I had, I was graduating out of high school and I was like, I did one semester of college and I came home and I had dinner with my parents. And I said, mom and dad, I have something to tell you. And my father looked at me and says, you're dropping out of college and you're moving to California. And I said, bingo. And he's like, yep, we knew that was coming. <laughs> and I didn't really want to go to college. I always wanted to move to LA and pursue acting. And um, so they weren't shocked and they were kind of worried about me, but they were like, I was like, if I don't do this now, I might spend the rest of my life going, what if, what if? And I'd rather try it and fail than never try at all. I think that's a common feeling for most people that move here. I, I know I felt that was, and that, that was kind of how my mom understood was like, I get it. Like it sucks, but I understand. And I know for Michael, it was the same way. It was that I understand it stinks, but we get it. Yeah. And, and, and it's that feeling of like, it's, it's calling my name. Like I have to be here. And um, some, it's sometimes it's better to do things when you're young, when you get older, you think about too much of the you consequences, it, yeah. you overthink it. I moved out here and I had no idea that I needed to buy silverware. I was like, wait, the apartment doesn't just come with silverware. My parents were like, no, you got to buy that. I'm like, wait, I have to buy everything. <laughs> but but it was good because I was here and I wasn't going to give up. So you have to get yourself here and then go, okay, I got to figure it out. So, so speaking of that, what was your planning like to move out here? Was it, you know, was it like mom, dad, and moving cars already packed them out? Or was it, you know, three months later after maybe working a job and raising some money? So I, yeah, my mother won't like this, but I'll be honest. My mother was not keen on me moving to LA at 19. And my father was extremely supportive, but my mother did say, if you go, you're cut off and that's it. And if you drop out of college and that's, that's fair enough. You know, I was like, okay. So I was like, we did get in a little fight about it. But then that night I went up to my room, my father came up and said, if you ever need anything, you know, we're not ever going to let you. And then, so I finished out the, the second semester of college, but I went and got a job because I knew, okay, I, I'm not going to have any support from my parents. And um, they weren't really in a position to support me anyway. So I knew I would be on my own. So I just went and got a waitressing job and I worked and worked and I was going to school and working and I just saved. And I used to give my the money to my dad back in the day when bank accounts were even different. And I'd be like, put this in my bank account, dad, put it in. And I racked up like, I think I saved like $7,000. Wow. So I had, I didn't really have a plan when I moved to LA, but at least I had money in the bank. Got some cushion. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. moving out here with $5 in my pocket. Right. So I actually had a nice savings account, but once it was time to go, I just literally packed up and I came. I just came. What was this? What was the time span between telling them you were leaving and actually a semester of college? Semester, so like about yeah. four or five months. Yeah. And they were super helpful. They even actually came out to LA and they, we had a friend from my father's church who lived in Van Nuys and she said, Oh, you guys can stay with me while she's looking for a place. So in the end, even though my mother said I would get cut off, she did not, she came <laughs> out here and they helped me and I really did need their help. And you know, it's, it's parents. Oh my gosh. It's, they're so great. Like my parents were so great. I was bawling when we were looking at apartments because it hit me how real it was that I just left everything I knew and I'm 19 and we were like meeting with apartment complexes and I just have tears streaming down my face and I'm just like I this is real like it hit me like this is happening you're going to be living alone in an apartment and you're really just a kid and my father my mother and I went out to a fast food restaurant and we were sitting at the table and I'm crying and I'm like I'm going to be okay and my father looked across the table at me and he said if you want to pack up the car and go home right now, no one will think the less of you. And it was like the kindest thing someone could say because I could have stayed because I was like, I'm going to prove everybody that I can do it. But he gave me that freedom to go, no one will think 
the less of you. And it actually made me, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to stay. I'm going to try to make it work. And, but I always knew that the door was open to go home. And you hear a lot of other kids don't always have that kind of LA story. (laughs) Now, did you move, you moved here on your own? I did. They left. Like they came out to help me find a place and they actually had a ticket home. And I remember we weren't finding me a place to live and their time was, was coming up and I was getting nervous that, once they left, I would really have to be figuring out how to play, find a place on my own. Right. Now, did you, did, so. Do you, looking back, do you wish you would have moved with someone, a friend or something? Or do you feel like moving by yourself worked best for you? I've never even thought of that before. I didn't really have any friends at all that <laughs> wanted to go to the film industry. I was just out of high school. I didn't really like any of my friends I went to high school with. So I really left Boston without any real friends. I met some college friends I loved. But, you know, no, I, I think, well... One thing I will say, moving to L.A. at 19 is very hard because I wasn't in school and I didn't have a job. So how do you make friends? I would literally be like, what do I, where do I go? I, and I'm not 21. I can't even go to a bar at night to go meet people. Or So I would spend a lot of time alone um, in my apartment reading books, which was great. But that's not so great when you're trying to pursue acting and no one knows who you are and you don't know how. I just didn't know how to get connected. Right. I knew about Backstage West. That's what saved me. Do you know Backstage West? I used to get that every Wednesday and bring it home and circle it and then put my headshots in those envelopes with my um, resume and I put it in the mail. And I did that right away, like right away when I moved out here. And I did book a music video right away. Mm-hmm. And I met a friend who gave me even more advice from that. So that was sort of how I, that was my first getting to meet with a community of filmmakers that were doing something. So, and that was pretty early on. Like the first week I was here, I booked that. Right. Yeah. Nice. Now I, I see, I, the, I like that. Cause like I moved here with my wife, yeah. our then girlfriend, fiance, now wife. And I don't know if I could ever have moved here on my own. Right. So I, I, I have a lot of respect for people that did just pack up, saved a little money and just moved here on their own because mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine like not knowing anyone here and just, Taking that leap by yourself is there, it terrifies me. There were days there were, when my parents left, you know, and oh, every time you do anything in life, it's waves of realization of what you've done. And it becomes different stages of that. And there were days where I'd be in my little guest house by myself bawling, going, what did I just do? What am I crazy? I have no friends, nobody. And I'm not a loner. I'm a huge people person. So I think the first year out in L.A. was really challenging as I was just trying to figure out how to make a community. So what were your when you 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 moved here, you found a place, your mom and dad went back home, (laughs) you're 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 in the big city. What were your first impressions of Los Angeles after you moved here? Um, I was really I was excited. I was scared. I was like I didn't. I didn't know anything. So I'm so not naive. I wasn't a naive person. I've been working in Boston and I was actually pretty mature for a 19 year old. Um, I do remember having, I mean, kids today have it so good. I had the Thomas guide. Okay. Like there's no GPS. So what I used to do, if I got an audition, you know, you get the address, you go get your Thomas guide and you look at the thing and then you have to go, you, you find one part of the map and then you have to match the numbers to the back of the map. And then you have to map, and then you have to actually write out the entire route of how you're going to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a lot of work. It makes, you know, we had to grow up fast back in, I mean, it was not 1999. I didn't have G, a GPS. What was that? So actually, I think it was good because I had to learn how to get myself around. And I actually knew, I will say that in 1999, I knew the streets of Los Angeles way better than I know the streets now. 
Really? Because I knew how to drive there without a GPS. Right. I Now I need my GPS to get me to Starbucks down the road because I'm like, I don't remember how to get there. So, but yeah, it, it felt big. It felt spread out. But, and I lived in studios. I lived in Sherman Oaks in a guest house. And, but I did, I will say, I, I think I was very lonely. Right. Uh, what, what would you say are the biggest differences between LA and Georgetown? <laughs> you got an hour. I mean, <laughs> Georgetown's a very, we shot our movie Wish for Christmas in Georgetown. So if you see Wish for Christmas, that's my hometown. It's very, very small. Mm-hmm. There were 68 kids in my graduating class. Tiny school, tiny school, tiny town. Um, but I was really close to Boston. So it wasn't like I w- had come from like some Timbuktu town and never experienced a city before. My father took me to my, to learn how to drive in Boston. He was like, if you can drive in Boston, you can drive in any city in America. And he was right. So um, I would say just the difference of Georgetown was just, um, it's just everybody knew each other. It was a very small community, um, especially because like my father had a church. So we all knew each other. So yeah, coming out here and being like, whoa, this is huge. And then, yeah, how do you make friends, you know? And I will say the difference is when I grew up in Georgetown and I was booking things in Boston, I had a lot of confidence and I will say L.A. beat that out of me. And because you struggle and because people reject you all the time that I, I, I can, I mean, this is going trip down memory lane back to 2000, but I remember just parts of my confidence being very ripped away. And I moved out here this like, I'm going to make it. I'm amazing girl. And then probably like if you had met me five years into L.A., I was just this like broken, destroyed person who was just like, I stink. Nobody wants me. I'm terrible. And I'm sure I was taking that into auditions. Right. Probably not why I was booking because I, we were like, I don't know if I want to work with that girl. <laughs> well, speaking of auditions, when you moved here, what was the first things you did to uh, get going to like introduce yourself into the community and, and start? I know you said you had trouble kind of meeting people, oh. but you know, did you get headshots? Did oh. you get trying to make a reel? Like what did you do I to did start? everything. And I had a reel because I worked in Boston and I just, I'm telling you, I'm not going to lie. My struggle was real out here. Like we, I, I did get headshots. I got new headshots made. I had headshots from Boston, but everybody was like, that's not going to work in LA. <laughs> so I went and got real headshots done. And then um, I did the backstage West thing. And then, you know, I, I tried to find a place to study because, you know, you need to be studying as an actor and also to tap into that community. Um, and, you know, I auditioned a lot and I, I booked a few independent stuff. But I, one of my biggest struggles, I couldn't get an agent. I could not get an agent to save my life. Like, or I got an agent and then he dropped me after one audition. And it was like, um, a lo- that was, I, I always wonder, had I got an agent who believed in me that would have worked, things would have been different. But I couldn't get an agent. So I was only booking no pay acting gigs that were little, half of them never even getting finished. So um, that's, it was, that was tough. <laughs> I'm sure. I did. What's the best way? Um, what were your first roles and jobs that you got, you know, when you started maybe booking some stuff? So the first thing I did was the Get Up Kids music video. Mm-hmm. That was like, and it was a big deal. And I was like, oh, this is a piece of cake in L.A. Now, is this the one uh, you did an interview with Inside Acting Podcast uh, a while back, um, which please check it out. There's going to be stuff on there that we probably don't talk about and vice versa. Um, there's a story in there where you talk about there was a role for uh, a how do you, how do you put this nicely? Uh, mean, part, mean, a very mean woman or mean girl. Is that, is that the music video? Yeah. It's in my book too. I talk yeah. about it in my book. Cause it was like, again, I, I came out here confident and strong mm-hmm. and being who I am. And I went into that interview with the director for the music video. And he's like, well, since it's a music video, I can't really have you act, but the character is mean. Are you mean? And I 
it's like, no, I'm not mean at all. He's like, well, are you kind of bitchy? And I'm like, no, I don't get bitchy. He's like, well, do you fly off the handle and get mad easily? And I was like, no, not really. And I was like, no, that's not me, but I can act that way. Every time I say that, I go, I can act like that. Yeah, want to see me get mad? I'll do it right now. But right. he didn't. And I walked out of the room and I got a call the same day that I booked the job. And he said, you were the only person who told me the truth. Mm-hmm. Everybody else told me what they thought I wanted to hear. Right. And I love that I just liked you. Right. I liked you. And I was like, is that not a testament of being true to who you are all the time? I don't think I kept that in my mind for the rest of the next 10 years <laughs> in L.A. I started to try to conform to what everybody thought I needed to be to mm-hmm. succeed. Um, but that's how I booked my very first job for the Get Up Kids, which was uh, it was on MTV. It was pretty. It cool. may have been in your book. It may not have been IAP. I was reading the same, listening to that podcast while reading your book at the same time. So I probably it may have been in your book where I read that and not not IAP. It could, yeah, I don't know if we talked about that. And then and then I from backstage West, I would be auditioning, and I got um, trying to remember some of the names. I did a lot of short films like. Um, maybe called Singles Night. And, you know, I was pretty good at always trying to keep in contact with everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I did. I worked probably the biggest thing I did in the beginning. Well, I got hooked up with Evan Glaudel, who did the movie Bellflower. Have you heard of Bellflower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Sundance. Did well, him and I met because I went into an audition for his short film called Apartment 12. And it was a he's crazy. Like, I love his movies. He's out there. And I read the script and I was like, well, this girl's crazy. So I went in there and was crazy. And I even think the story was that they wanted like the the director, the producer wanted like a pretty blonde girl. And he was like, but we have to go with Alexandra because she was crazy. Like she <laughs> did it. She went all out. So I heard that story later when Evan and I became friends that I was like, I beat out the stereotypical pretty blonde girl because I was willing to just take the sides all the way. I just went in there and went crazy. All right, so Evan Glaudel and I became friends after that, and then I would run around with him and shoot shorts with him all the time, which was super fun. And then my biggest thing would have been um, I got a job for The Asylum. Do you know the Asylum movies? The straight-to-DVD knockoffs Mm -hmm. of the big movies? Mm -hmm. So I I befriended one of the ADs, Mm -hmm. and he ended up... Morph bots. What? (laughs) Like morph bots. Oh, yeah, like transmorphers. I have them over there. Mm -hmm. The Pirates of Treasure Island was Mm -hmm. my first job, and it's because I befriended the AD, and I kept bugging him, being like, can I get a part in your movie? Can I get a part in one of your movies? And... Then a girl dropped out last minute. He's like, would you want to drive you know, down to San Pedro and you'll be in it right now? And then that was the beginning. I did three movies for the asylum. Oh, wow. So that was a big deal. Nice. Me. I was like, woohoo. <laughs> so what did you do to support your you know, daily living and, oh. and your, your day-to-day groceries and all that stuff? I did what everybody does. I waited tables. <laughs> and I waited I have waited tables in like every city in this town. I could be like, oh, I worked there. Oh, I worked there. <laughs> well, like I we drive around for hours and I've worked at almost every corner mm. of this town. I worked at Saddle Ranch on Sunset. Mm. That was my first job. I worked at Vanguard Nightclub. I worked at BB King's at City Walk. I mean, I spent 10 years nonstop waiting tables, which wow. is exhausting. I've been there, man. I, I feel like everybody should wait tables just to have the experience, even for like just a few months, and just to, have to understand some graciousness to servers, mm-hmm. <laughs> just, some, just right. to understand. Um, what was the in what you know? Obviously, it's probably changed a lot since then. But what was LA like in like the late nineties, early two thousands? Well, I feel like I'm sure that I think doors were a little easier to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have some meetings with some huge agencies, even though I didn't get with them. I actually was able to meet with them, right. which I feel like now it's just so hard to get an agent meeting for anybody. Um, 
Traffic was still crazy. Oh, I know. Okay, so Los Feliz was not somewhere you went. Mm-hmm. Van Nuys was not somewhere you went. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that when I moved back from Albuquerque and Los Feliz and Silver Lake were like places people were moving, that was super new. Because mm-hmm. back when I lived here, that would have been sort of like a scary place to I drive. I feel like Van Nuys is literally not a place to go to. Well, it is, but <laughs> I have friends who are buying houses up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have three friends, three different friends who bought houses in that area and it's starting to get built up into right. a nice area. So I would say like everyone getting pushed out because it's mm-hmm. so expensive is building up areas that like when I moved out here, I wouldn't have driven past Magnolia Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And now my friends live, Pat, we go to the Victory Movie Theater all the time. Right. You know, it's still not a great place. I'm not love Van Nuys. But and prices were different. You know, I probably could have gotten an apartment at the beach then affordable where now it's just not possible. And um, I think, you know, the world wasn't as connected as it is now too. like making your own stuff wasn't something you really thought about doing back then. Like Evan, for me, I, you know, he is, he was always making his own stuff. Even in 2000, he was building his own cameras, always going, I'm not, I'm always going to have a re- never going to wait for someone to tell me I can't make something. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in like the early 2000s, that was still very daunting. Like, how do you make your own thing? How do you get those cameras? And it, it, nowadays it's, you have access to everything. You can make it on your iPhone. So I think um, creating your own work wouldn't have been something you'd think that it was possible back right. then. Right. So, I mean, yeah, YouTube wasn't around and no, all YouTube, that stuff. Right. So, like, it, where do you even put it? You make it and then where are you going to put it? Yeah, and now you can just grab a phone and just make something, post, right. it, post it on the internet. Exactly. I mean, Survivor was like the, f- I remember Survivor had just come out when I moved out here. So we're going back to the very beginning of like, what's this reality television mm-hmm. thing? And then, um, you know, people, maybe even I should have gotten on one of those because that did help jumpstart people's career, <laughs> uh, like my brother. And, and but back then I was like, oh, reality, that's never going to last, you know? <laughs> <laughs> No one's gonna watch like, that. No crap. one's gonna watch that stupid stuff. <laughs> no one's watch that garbage. Oh my um, <laughs> so you eventually, after a while, decided to produce a play with a friend of yours, uh, The House of Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about how that came about and what the process what was to put that on and how it went. Well, I was working at Vanguard Nightclub and I was making actually a lot of money. I was making like two thousand dollars a night. Whoa! I went from I'm writing like, that place down. I know this is before before the market crash in two thousand eight time. I was working there from two thousand. Erasing that from my phone. Yeah, erase that. No, I don't know. I'm sure they make money, but I was making really good money. I got the job in about two thousand and six, and it was actually the first time in my life out here where I could breathe because mm-hmm. I wasn't just making 10 bucks and trying to keep my head above water. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm making money. And then I just really was so fed up with, I was coming up on my 10 year year here and I, you wake up one day and go, wow, if I don't do something now, I'm going to wake up 40 and I'm going to wake up 50 and I'm going to wake up and still be waiting tables doing the same. I was doing the same thing over and over expecting different results. And I, I decided that I had some money. I didn't know how to make a movie. But I was like, maybe we could make a play. And then it was really just to be able to be creative when I was like fed up with waiting for someone else to let me be creative. Mm -hmm. And when you have a lot of creative energy, I think it's why actors can go crazy because you have all this built up energy. And if you don't have anywhere to put it, you're going to go do drugs or something. It makes sense (laughs) or drink yourself to death. So my girlfriend Raquel and I got together and I told her I wanted to do a play. And she's like, that sounds like fun. I'll do it with you. So I got her and then we got we just got like a bunch of people on board to do it. And um, and uh, we picked the house of yes because there were parts for both of us that we wanted, mm-hmm. and we were, and then it was really fun. It was my first producing job. It was my first job of I have no idea how to produce a play, but every day we'll figure out what we have to do, right. and then by the end we'll have 
a play, right? <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> it's supposed to how it works. Yeah. And if you don't give up, which we didn't, and we got a theater and we got a great group of people and we sold out every single night and it was actually very successful. We should have even had more. Um, but it was also having the freedom of money. I mean, that you can't do a lot of stuff if you don't have the money. If you're constantly working six nights a week and you're just making enough to survive. So that was a time where I was like, I should put my money into something that matters. Mm -hmm. So I put my money into a play. Nice. What, um, what did you take? Like, what do you feel you've taken from that that you've carried through you from that experience that you learned or, um, um, you know, maybe a, a trait that you got from that? Discipline mm -hmm. to not give up. Even if you feel like, you know, even if something falls through, you have to figure out something else to not just say, okay, that didn't work out. We're halfway through, but it, we lost this per thing. Okay, give up. That mm -hmm. discipline. It was the very beginning, the beginning stages of me learning discipline. And because I definitely in my early, I will say in my 10 years out here, I was very always like, oh, I want to do this. And then I'd be like, oh, that'll take too long. Forget it. Mm -hmm. And then two years ago by and I'd be like, well, if I had done that idea, that'd be done by now. And now I have nothing to show for anything. So um, I also think that um, what else did I learn from it? Just I also I think it was really good for me because I said I was doing it for creativity, but I was really also in the back of my brain doing it for an agent to come and find me and rep me. And my goal in 10 years was always to find an agent. And I realized how my mentality was so messed up. And that's the beginning of me moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico was I'm still doing things just to find an agent. Like what is wrong with me? Like it's been 10 years and I'm not, and I think even I was, even after the play did so well, I was like, nobody called me to rep me. Nobody, no agents were there. And then I was like, my mentality is just, I've forgotten what I came out here for in the first place. So you kind of missed that moment to celebrate the success you had because this one piece didn't right. fit. Because we think if we have an agent, then all of a sudden we're going to book and then we're going to become a working actor. Yeah. And in the back of my head, that's what I wanted. And I was like, is that what I really want? Or do I just want to be able to be creative? Mm -hmm. Like it's always the sides of our brain going, what do we really want when we do something? What's the real ultimate goal? But I think I'm being really honest, which is very vulnerable to me. And to be honest to say, I really wanted an agent, but yet I also really want to be creative. And I think I, I, I missed out on that part of it because I was so like this part of my brain that was doing the same thing over and over going, well, this time I'll get an agent. This time it'll change my career. Then I'll be a movie star. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta stop this. It's not working. And it's just ruining me. I think, I think that's, just, I think there's still that stigma now where people are creating stuff and, and the focus is notice me, notice me, notice me, find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter, notice me, notice me, follow me, follow me. And I think if you possibly, and then this is something I've worked on over the last two years of changing your mindset to, don't not doing it for them to find you, but doing it for you. And eventually they will find you. Yep. And I think, you know, obviously, as we will discuss as we go on, that kind of happened with you. And I think that's a mindset that a lot of people need to remember. Um, and, and so as obviously L.A. is a tough place to live in. Um, you know, being here, you're in a sea of people, but can feel super lonely. Um, before you decided to move to New Mexico, how did you... What, what was your process for handling those hard times? Like, what did you do to get through them? Oh, to get through Los Angeles? Yeah, the hard emotional, angry, frustrated, crying, upset, just just feeling like everything was just not going right. Everything felt like it was always against me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had a lot of, I was homeless. I got attacked by a dog really brutally. I had a lot of really bad things that just... Like you said, I just kept feeling like every time I'm getting a little bit ahead, something would push me back. And I 
Um, you know, I, I have a really wonderful family. So I used to call my, you know, I called my family a lot and I had some really good friends. I, I, my friend Lorena Segura York, who's in Catching Faith at Home Sweet Home, is one of my best friends. Her and I met up pretty early on in my years in LA and she became my roommate. And that was like a life, a lifeline for me to have a friend that I just loved and adored who also was in the business. And she had a different projection for me. I think one hard thing as an actor for me especially was I had to watch a lot of other people get things that was not coming to me. Like she was like in line at a Staples and an agent walked up to her and was like, I'd like to rep you. And she came home and told me that story. And can you imagine the boiling (laughs) jealousy that was coming out of my head? I was like, you were in a Staples line and an agent wants to rep you? I've been here for six years. I can't even get an agent to rep me. But that also teaches you the art of love and compassion and to not let my jealousy for my friend destroy my relationship with my friend because I love her. And if I didn't handle it well, she would have not wanted to be in my life anymore. So I was always having to check my ego and check my rejection or check my jealousy because I loved her more than I loved the business. And that's really important to, to love your friends and to be able to be happy for people. And I know that now in my career that I'm just like, I really want people around me to be genuinely happy for me and I have earned it. So it's not like I got out here and someone just can't, was like, I'm going to give you a movie job. Like I have, but I think having Lorena as my friend, and I worked at BB Kings at CityWalk, which is one of the worst jobs in the whole entire world. It was so bad. But we had a group of us, five girls who all worked there together, and we loved each other. And it was like, at least I know that I have this support system. And that gets you through. You have to have friends, and you have to have friends that will let you cry on their shoulder. You have to let friends who will let you feel sorry for yourself when you need to, and friends that say, now it's time to get up and get over that. You know, I think that that's really important. I also started studying with Harry Master George. And I studied with him for six years and I loved going to that acting class. So no matter what, I was going somewhere where I was getting to outlet my acting. He's a very successful coach and him and I would privately talk and he's like, Alexander, you're very talented. Don't let this town, just because you're not booking, doesn't mean you're not really good. And I needed that because you start going, do I suck? (laughs) Maybe I should just give up. So community, community, community. uh, This is kind of a two-part question. So you know, what, what was the final straw that made you wake up and go, I need to move. I need to get out of here. And then why Albuquerque? Okay. That's a two part question. I love it. My brother, Andrew lived in Santa Fe with his wife and he was always telling me, Hey, the film industry is really booming in Albuquerque. You should come here. And I'm like, what? He's like, literally they're shooting all this stuff here. So I actually did get an agent over there. I submitted myself. That would have been back in 2007 years where an agent rep me. He was like, I'll rep you from LA. And I was like, oh, this is great. But I definitely kept feeling like I was supposed to um, move there. But I I worked in a nightclub where I was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm moving and leaving this job. And literally like around the time after the play, when I was so disappointed that I didn't get the agent and the play was over and I was like, okay, what's next? I lost my job and my apartment in the same week. And I do believe in God. So I believe that I was praying and I was also very an unhealthy human being in that time. I was drinking a lot at my job. I was depressed. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was getting in fights with my friends all the time. I was, I could not not be jealous of people. Like if someone got something, I'd be like, don't even talk to me. I don't even want to talk to anyone who's succeeding. I've been here 10 years. 
And I recognized that I was becoming extremely unhealthy. And at the same time that I was starting to hit rock bottom as a human being, I felt like God was like, you're done. You won't leave LA, but I I don't know what more to do to get you out of this town. Mm -hmm. I also think LA, and you've come here at 19, you've been somewhere for 10 years, you start living your world in this little box that you don't know how to get out of the box. Like I was like, I don't know how to stop doing the same thing over and over. I don't know if the other options. So literally I got a call from my job that they fired me because I was being inappropriate. I was being a bitch at work because I was angry all the time. And they were like, we don't want you here anymore. (laughs) They literally fired me. And then my brother who I lived with was like, I'm moving to the beach. So you got to find a new roommate. And I was like, okay, that's it. I don't have a place to live. I don't have a job. I'm leaving. And it was pretty almost given, it was almost like it was forced upon me. And I'm so thankful that that happened because if it hadn't happened, I might've stayed working at Vanguard and stayed looking for another roommate and never have re- and once I moved, it was like my whole life changed for the better. So that's that's really how the catalyst of getting me to New Mexico. And I called my mother and I said, Mom, I'm moving to Albuquerque. I'm going to give up. I get even emotional now. I'm giving up. Letting it all go. And she was like, well, then why don't I come and drive you there? And I was like, that'd be really nice. It didn't work. <laughs> I got, like gave up my dreams. That's a hard thing to do, you know? That's a, and that's a strong <laughs> statement to say, like, I'm done. It didn't work. And I, I, I accept defeat. Yeah. And I'm going to go try something else with my life. It, it's it's tough, but it's probably one of like the bravest things that you can do. And more most like courageous to sit there and just admit to yourself, this is not working. I need something new. Mm-hmm. And that means leaving here. And because sh- this town can make you feel stuck. It can make you feel like you can't leave here. Because this is where that where it's at, mm-hmm. and yeah. so to kind of make that move is huge. Yeah, and I like I always like the analogy of I had my f- fist so tight, like I wanted everything so much, and when I left here, I just said, I let it all go, and I was like, why don't we just start enjoying life for the first time? Because I was spending my life trying to succeed. I never really enjoyed those years of my life. And, and I believe you said in your book, like when you got on the road and you got out of Los Angeles, you immediately started feeling. That freedom. A I just more, felt that re- like that relaxation. I felt the 10 years of mm. pressure and pain and rejection and struggle just start to melt and go away. And it was like, I was like, I, I felt like a, a ton of bricks had just fallen off my, sh- off my shoulders. And I was like, okay, something, something new is on the horizon. It's going to be good. And, you know, my mother drove with me the 12 hours. We got to New Mexico And she was like, I just don't like who you've become. And I was like, mom, I don't like who I've become either. I'm not a good person. I'm not happy. I've been rejected for 10 years straight in acting. You're rejecting you. I was not pretty enough, skinny enough. Everything was wrong. So I was like, I really was not a good person anymore. Like I had lost my joyful spirit that really loves life. Because like what I said, I wasn't living life. I was living every day going, how do I succeed? Once I succeed, then I'll enjoy my life. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible way to live your life because you, I missed my entire twenties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and then, um, and then my fault. Fo- and then my mother was just like, she was like, I just, I don't like you. And even hearing your mother say she doesn't like you, but I admitted to her, I was like, I don't like me either. That's why I left LA. And that's why I'm going to try something new with my life.
All right, welcome back, everyone. Michael here for some outro discussions, and I am joined by the guy you've been listening to for the past 40 minutes, Mr. Daniel Tuttle. That's me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey, Michael. Oh, hey, Daniel. Uh, this is, I'm still getting used to this idea that we get to speak together in our outros. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's it, you know it's it's really exciting because especially like talking about the the outline that we put together for the outros and being able just to like bring our ideas together and collaborate even more is I, I love collaboration and especially you know working with you is so much fun. So being able to kind of continually collaborate on even the small things like this is always fun. So I'm excited to to be doing these dual outros. Right. Dual outros. That's right. We're dueling on the outro. Dueling. I'm, we're each going to do an outro at the same time. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and your ears began to bleed, listeners. Ah! <laughs> but uh, before we dive into our discussion about what we just heard, what's going on with you, man? How's the past week been? Man, it's been it's been good. It's been it's been really weird. I've been really like I think my body's trying to get used to having a full time job again and and not <laughs> being able to like relax and just chill when I wanted to and you know being really and like, feeling as an assistant especially you're kind of always on alert just in case something comes in or a meeting needs to be scheduled or uh, you know making sure that all your my executives make it to a meeting. So it's kind of I feel like I'm just been really tired this week. Like the other day, I literally like fell asleep at like 8:30. I was so oh, wow. just overwhelmingly tired. And especially again now having a full-time job, um and Nolan doesn't go to sleep until like 9 or 10 at night. I've been getting up at like 5:50 to go to the gym. And so it's my whole body is just getting used to the time schedule, but the job's going really well. Uh I I'm I'm becoming I'm getting to know my coworkers, which is always my favorite part of any job. Um, mm -hmm. everybody's been super great. My boss, I'm, I'm learning more and more and, and, and doing more. And so hopefully I'm doing a good job and it continues. <laughs> hopefully, <Yay>. hopefully. <laughs> um, and, uh, this week, that, that's awesome, uh, you man. know, so yeah, this week, I don't, I, I can't remember if we talked about it in part one, but, uh, Alexandra has a film premiering this week on Friday with her producing partner and future guest of the show, uh, Helena, uh, Helena Santos. And nice. it's called At Your Own Risk. And uh, we talk about it in the next part of the film, uh, of the podcast. But it premieres this Friday, the 27th, 27th and uh, I'm going to the premiere and super excited about it. And then Saturday, there's a panel that Alexandra and Helena are on with hopefully future guest Deb, Deborah Smith from uh, Inside Acting Podcast. And mm -hmm. uh, Bria Grant, who is from Heroes, and she's directed a few films, and she's actually, I think, read a comic book, and uh, we've been trying to get her on the show as well. They're doing a panel about micro-budgeting and, and making a film on like a small amount of money. So I'm excited to go to that panel and hopefully learn a few things. Oh, I mean, I'm sure you'll learn a lot of things. This, what a, an amazing group of artists to be yeah, and that's, and that's uh, just leading three of the panel. Them. There's like four others. Yeah, there's like four other people. Wow. That are, that are going to be on it as well. So it's, I think it's going to be a really cool panel. And and our graphic designer, Mikey, is coming with me. So Yay, Mikey uh, Tobias. I'm to share it. Yeah, Mikey Tobias is coming with us. So as long uh, as I'm you really have excited so, to go. As long as you have a Michael with you. I have okay to have a Michael this. by my side at all times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how about you, I man? How, just, how, 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 oh, good. Sorry. You know, micro-budgeting is really becoming the future of independent filmmaking. If you look at what Jason Blum is doing over at Universal with Blumhouse Productions, 
he'll make a movie for about a million or two dollars, but then he gets back a hundred times that at the box office. And, and they're good quality. And they're amazing quality. And so I think the work that Alexandra's uh, doing with all of the films that she's done, it's all been in, you know, really budgeting the the money that you need to get it done and yeah, like getting what, amazing what, results from it. Yeah. What's the media, what's the minimum I need to make this happen yeah. and make it good. And, yeah. And, and that's, and what, that's for our need. listeners and for our listeners to know, we're going to go into quite a bit of that in next week's episode for Alexander's Absolutely. act two. But first, Michael, I know you had some, you, you went and saw some doctors this week and you had some rehearsals this week and you have friends come like what's going on with your week. <laughs> His yeah, week so, seems crazy. So your body's getting adjusted to having a full-time job while my body is literally being adjusted by chiropractors. <laughs> is there a right chiropractor now. for jobs? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I've been meeting with this chiropractor uh, for new listeners. I was in a car accident uh, a couple weeks ago and still dealing with uh, quite a bit of the pain from that. And so uh, I've been I've been seeing this chiropractor and i mean it's amazing because some of the stuff that they're able to do you they crack things that you didn't know could be cracked before or you find out how out of alignment you really are but i've also found out from just doing several different like motor skill tests that i'm dealing with like big concussion post-concussion syndrome uh wow wow yeah like this is stuff where if I close one eye and try and resist, like with my left arm, uh, try to resist someone pushing it down, depending on what pressure points or something he's hitting, I'm not able to resist anything on my left mm-hmm. side. So wow. this definitely came from, you know, some, some head injury or whatever, like, because I know I hit my head during the car accident. So it's, it's something that him and I are currently working on. So that's well, I'm been glad you're getting worked on. Yeah, exactly. Um, my, my body's getting some tough love that it needs right now, uh, in order for it to feel better down the road. Um, but then I also was contacted by my friend who, uh, works in the production, uh, company that filmed the commercial that I did a couple weeks back. And he's been telling me that the footage looks really, really good. Awesome. Like he he was Great saying job, the other man. night, um, like, I don't know why we keep asking you back. You're just like too consistently good or something. And the not not to give myself a compliment or anything, but I'm humble brag, exci- mutt. Humble brag, yeah. <laughs> but I'm always excited to hear that one of the big best notes I could get as an actor, especially when it comes to film, is how consistent. No, that's a, I that's am. a great compliment to get. Absolutely. Yeah. And because when you're on set and there's a hundred things happening around you, your job as an actor is to just do your job and to be able yeah. to do it well, can like take after take after take. And a lot of the times when you're doing takes, it's not to change anything that you're doing. It's because the the director of photography wants to maybe change the angle or something like that. So you don't want to, at least for commercials, for film, it's different, but for commercials, you don't want to drastically change what it is that you're doing in the scene. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, th- and then, as you said, today, the reason why we're, one of the reasons why we're recording so 
early this morning is I have some of my best friends flying into town from Northern California for the weekend to visit me. So yay, get a link of Vacaville and Northern California and down here in LA. It'll be nice. It's fun. Follow Michael on Michael Luther on Instagram. I'm sure you'll see tons of pictures and Insta stories (laughs) with his friends. Exactly. It's always interesting though when like, I, I don't know how you are, Daniel, when you have friends come in from out of town, but it's like they it's like, oh, I don't know what I want to do in L.A. Just, you know, we'll 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 go and hang out. And it's like coming up with all the things that you could possibly do oh, in Los Angeles. It's There's, the worst. It's literally the worst. It's like you're the you're the tourist. Like you're the you're the visitors. You tell me what you want to go. Like you tell <laughs> me what you want to do. We live here. We can literally do anything at any time that we want. What do you want to do? <laughs> like you're here for two or three days what do you want to do let's see yeah. also my friends have to fly from texas and uh, so yeah, getting them here farther. is is a little more difficult <laughs> this is true <laughs> i don't uh, sadly i don't i only have one friend from vacaville <laughs> yay and that's mikey <laughs> ashley, ashley ashley mary <laughs> oh ashley mary nunes <laughs> yeah ashley mary nunes no uh, throwback to season one guest. Um, yeah. But speaking of guests and stuff, we should probably talk more about what we listen. Uh, speaking of guests, we should probably go back and, you know, kind of discuss our big takeaways from the uh, act one interview that you just had with Alex. Um, well, uh, you know, first of all, let me just say, yeah. Alexandra is literally one of the nicest people I have met in Los oh. Angeles. Like she was so welcoming and open to anything and everything. And it was just literally a pleasure to chat with her for two hours. Like, yeah, I, we could the, have gone on for three or four hours. Easy. Oh, a- absolutely. And, you know, she was just so welcoming and inviting us into her home. And the moment we just like set our bags down, it was just like, I, I felt like I was talking to one of my best friends from back home. It was just amazing conversation we were literally um, invited to a cookout <laughs> while we were talking to her like yeah. like they invite us to stay to, to eat some cookout and it was it was just the nicest people and so i hope we i hope me and you as, as like filmmakers get to work with them someday in a, in a yeah. filmmaking aspect because i think it would be a lot of fun yeah and i mean if listeners you already just you've already heard a little bit from alexandra today she is so inspirational and we we did talk off mic, uh, me as an actor to her, you know, one of the big things that I just really appreciated that she talked about was this kind of thing of, as an actor, it's so easy to not celebrate the wins that you get in this town um, because you're so focused on the industry or or building your social media presence and stuff. It's so easy to look at opportunities and judge, uh, you know what, is this going to get me the agent? Or our casting director is going to come to this 99-seat theater. And it was so validating at time, in a way to hear it. But also just I, I appreciated hearing someone else speak into that because that is an issue that I always am dealing with here in L.A. So it was so great to talk to her, um, not only in the episode, but also off mic and, and speak more about that. Uh, what do you think, Daniel? I mean, I, I, I always try to remind myself that your craft or your art or your love, uh, your passion should be for you. And, and whenever you act and whenever you write or direct or 
write a poem or a book. In the long run, you should be writing for yourself, doing it because you love it and it makes you happy. And 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 if you start judging or basing your successes or failures off other people and you 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 make that something that attaches to you then you're going to lose the love or passion that you have for that thing because it needs to be first you, something you want to do something that you love for yourself and so i think it's very poignant that you bring it up that it is important to make sure that you celebrate your wins however small they are just getting on stage and performing something is a win like getting yeah. in front of a camera and performing something is a win whether you wrote it and you put it together even then there's more of a win you wrote something you got it filmed win like all of yeah. you there's well, no failure in creation Nothing exactly is a failure. or even or even if it's just going up in front of your class and performing a scene yeah. that you've been working on it's, you got in front of the class and you did you got the in scene. front of the class you worked on your craft yeah, there's that's and I think people overlook and I think we've talked about this a little bit before where you overlook the small things that you kind of toss aside as just things that are necessary and not successes. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think we live in a, a time where there's so many distractions, there's so much to do that you have to take the little wins when they are there. If you had a long day at work, but you still went to the gym win if you had a long day and you still got up at 5 30 to go to the gym when like if you ate good but you wanted that donut when like you've got to <laughs> celebrate these small wins when they happen because that's what's going to lift you and build you up throughout the day and i think yeah. that's that's really important to bring up michael that's a great that's a great a great thought yeah definitely man it's uh, like it's speaking with alex as as you know it, it it's just it gets your mind thinking and it, it it was just so great to talk to her. And also one of the other things that she talked about that I feel like we haven't spoken about in a little while, at least here on the podcast, is the difficulty of leaving home for uh, something new. Like I, re- you know, I, re- I remember when we talked about our, our kind of versions of our, our trip here. And when we mm-hmm. left, you know, you left Vacaville and I left Dallas. And I, I think it's even more poignant, like remembering like you talking about like the day you left. Um and like how your mom reacted. And because when Angie and I left, we left from our apartment. There wasn't anybody else around us. Oh, we okay. We didn't, we didn't leave. No family was there to like wave as the car drove off into the sunset. Like there was, it was just us leaving our, the apartment we had lived in. And, you know, there's still emotion to that. But I just remember you telling me your story about your mom's reaction and you hugging her and leaving and, and, and just, oh, man, like yeah. how, how it, hard that must have been. It, it was so hard. It was, you know, uh, to do a little recap, because if you want to hear the full story, definitely go back to our season one interviews. I think it's our second team hustle. Yeah, I think it's Team Hustle number two. Uh, we do. A, I think it's the second part because we did the Bat- Batman versus Superman quiz at the first part, I believe. <laughs> That's right. That sounds so funny. Just out of context. We talk we uh, talk serious on this podcast. <laughs> very serious. But yeah, it was a thing where my parents had just thrown me a uh, going away party the night before, but there was no actual date in terms of when I was actually leaving. And I kind of woke up that morning and I just had this gut feeling of today's the day. And mm-hmm. I went down, I had breakfast, and my parents were both there. And I told them, hey, 
I'm, I'm going to become a Scientologist. <laughs> Tom Cruise just called me. He said, move to L.A. I've got to uh, go join Sea Org. <laughs> but, you know, I told him, like, I've got a job offer. And Jazz is already, Jazz Trice, previous guest Jazz Trice, already is at our apartment. I'm moving down today. And my mom's reaction was the light went out in her eyes and it was so hard saying goodbye. Like tears were just streaming down our faces as I was loading up my dad's truck. And it was one of those feelings of like, if she called me during that drive, I might've turned around. Yeah. But the thing is you keep going because as Alex talks about, I don't think I could have been happy with myself had I never gone. Right. And be, I, and the and that feeling of like uh comfort that I was so sad to be ripping myself away from, that's the reason why I needed to leave home. That's the reason yeah. why I needed to move to Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I you know, like I said, there wasn't a lot of family. Like we had a going away thing as well and um you know, for me it was just it was it, honestly like it was it was hard to leave because the friends I had and, and the comfortability I had in Dallas, I, I knew Dallas, I knew where everything was, I knew people. Um, it, it was it was exciting, but there was that ominous, like, I'm driving towards the unknown. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to make it, quote unquote. I don't know if I'm going to find success in Los Angeles. I don't know if I'm going to hate it and want to come back. And, and there was a lot of those questions, but, the, you know, one of the things that I've learned long ago is to take any fear and try to turn it into like positive energy and, mm-hmm. and use it to drive you. Um, and so I really made a choice to do that and just be positive about it and say, you know, th- this is why you're doing it because of this fear, because this fear will turn into this, you know, sadness or regret if you don't do something about it. And, and so it was, it was really hard to leave the city I knew and my family so close and all the friends I had made, but it was really exciting at the same time to start something new. Yeah. And did you hit that moment? Like when you were driving, like whether it was on a certain hill or something like that sadness starts that shift, it it, it shifts to that inspirational, like I'm moving, wait, this is actually what I'm doing. I'm going, I'm moving to Los Angeles. This is the thing. Like, this is so cool. Uh, yeah, it kind of hit. I think, I think when I, when we got to California, like that's mm-hmm. like when we entered California, that's when the real excitement, the second wind, cause we drove all the way within, in two days, uh, we took a, we stopped in, uh, I want to say New Mexico. no, Maybe Arizona. I can't remember where we stopped. I think oh, Arizona. We stopped in Arizona uh, and and slept, and then we drove the next day the rest of the way. And when we got into California, that was the second win. That was like, okay, we're here. Like <laughs> it's it's real. Like we're in California. All our stuffs, most of our stuffs, in the back seat. Griffin squeezed in in the back seat. This is it. Griffin being your dog. <laughs> yes, Griffin is our Griffin is our dog, not our captive. Though <laughs> so he would say different. <laughs> nice. Um, um, you what know, did you so, take away so, from uh, from your Act One talk with Alex? Well, you know, talking kind of about moving. You know, one of the things that we kind of that we kind of end on with the episode is Alex talking about like you know moving to Albuquerque and how she did not like who she became 
in California, in Los Angeles. And, you know, so it really kind of hit me this idea of like losing sight of yourself and like the price you pay to chase your dream sometimes, or you can pay if you're not careful. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's important. And I'll, I'll talk a little more about this later in the episode, but it's important for anything that you want to do, whether it's in the arts and arts industry or not, is to make sure you always remember why you're doing it, what it is you want to be, and be aware of you and make sure that you don't let this town or your, your, your pursuit of your dream change you for the worst. And if it makes you healthier, that's great. If you know you decide to start losing weight because maybe that'll help the job, great. But the moment you stop, you start, you know, uh, what's the best way to say it? The, you start recessing into yourself and letting things in the pursuit of this dream make you who you are, then you really need to start rethinking whether that's worth it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what she did. She was able to become aware, like, I'm not happy. I'm not in a good place. I got to get out of here. And, and that's, and that's a brave thing to admit to yourself, realize and act upon. Absolutely. I think it's, I think we've had a, a couple of guests also who have moved to LA and then they moved back home for a little while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, granted in Alex's case, she didn't go back home. She went to a completely different uh, new environment. But I think it's so important for listeners to understand that that's okay. If you need to put something on hold, whether that's indefinite hold or, you know what, I don't even know if I'll ever come back. That's okay. Yeah. Because it's at the, at the end of the day, you need to do what's best for you. And if you're staying out here to hopefully please you know, the industry, these people that you don't even know, then no, you need to think about yourself. You need to think about how can you need to reconnect with yourself and go somewhere that, you know, you'll be able to find yourself again. Well, Grace Gordon moved here the first time and then went back home and, you know, then she came back. And, and, and so You've got to not look at things as successes or failures because a lot of people who leave LA feel like they failed. They did not do what they came here to do. But if if we stop thinking that way and start thinking of what you can take away from things and how you grow and and being okay with being doing something that's good for you and being okay with that, that's when the success comes. That's when that's when the the betterment of the change for betterment in yourself can come. Yeah. And I know we talked about this with Trevor Algott, but what is failure? You just learned that something you you just learned that you found out that you don't really like this particular thing or doing it this particular way. That's a success. That's a yeah. good thing. So uh, definitely some really important uh, stuff discussed, even more than what we just talked about here. Uh, yeah. And I can't wait for discussion. you to hear part two. Oh my gosh. It was so hard to try and find a place to split this uh, interview. Oh man. It was so hard, to, hard. It was hard to stop interviewing like when we were talking to her. Cause it was just so like, just so comfortable and casual conversation, even though it was solely question and answer, it really just felt like I was having coffee with her and just getting to know her. It was, mm-hmm. it was fantastic. Um, um so go ahead. Qu- yeah. Yeah. Real quick. Um, we got a listener question, Daniel. 
Yay. Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, from one of our uh, good friends, Lynn McGee. She's at Lynn and McGee on Twitter. Um, she sent this a while back. Uh, we've been actually sitting on wanting to respond to this for a little while uh, just because I wanted to reach out to some people that I know to help us answer this question. But Daniel, uh, do you want to take her question? Absolutely. Uh, My daughter is currently an assistant stage manager for a theater company here. She recently found out that she is the lowest paid person there at $250 per show. They have two plays and a musical, and she receives the $250 when the show wraps up. She assists with auditions, attends all blocking meetings, writes up all the time notes uh, and line notes, takes care of the mics, uh, moves props during the show, and is expected to clean the rehearsal area. She asked for an increase in pay, and they said she has no real skills and someone who runs lights, or like someone who runs lights or a choreographer, which, by the way, she is a dancer, and they routinely have her fill in for the choreographer when she can't make it. They also told her that since she is only 24, the pay is based on that, too. She has a degree in theater. uh, uh, She has a degree in theater, too, and is intern at Disney World in their entertainment area. They told her an intern with zero skills can do her job and has done it in the past. Oof. Oh boy! All right, listeners, hold on, hold on, hold on. I know. All right, like, I'm, 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 I'm ready. I'm ready. I know, <laughs> let's, right? Uh, let's talk about. But yeah, let's let's share your friends' answers because I'm really interested to hear what they yeah, have to say about this. Definitely. And so Lynn writes us from Chicago, Illinois. So uh, keep that in mind um, as I read some of my friends' responses. So I reached out to two stage managers that I know who are professional stage managers. They've been, uh, I met them both at UC Davis. That's where we went to college and they've gone on and had really successful careers. Um, and I'm kind of there, both of their answers were very similar. So Lynn, we're going to send you both of their answers in great detail, but I'm going to kind of read some of their answers and just kind of merge them into one response. So Uh, But just so you know who this is, this is Mia Oliveira. Uh, She's a production manager and a stage manager in the Bay Area, and she received her bachelor's at UC Davis. And then we also have Teddy Gray. He's also a stage uh, and production manager in Baltimore and holds an MFA in production management from CalArts. So both of them thought that it was just unbelievable that a theater company that's trying to go equity would handle a situation like this. If if they had asked her back for multiple shows, that means that she must be doing something right. And, you know, it's unfair that they keep paying her at such a low rate. Um, And Mia specifically says, I don't care how low that cost is. Having someone with no skills as an assistant stage manager or a stage manager gives me more work. So the fact that Lynn's daughter is experienced like if you, if there, this was someone with no skills that would give the whole production staff a whole lot more work to do to update this person this is someone who's experienced okay Phew. um but that said the idea that she has no skills is awful you just don't tell that to someone you consistently employ if i were her i would say Thank you and goodbye, just because I wouldn't want to put up with working for someone who has admitted that they think I have no skills. Clearly, they've invited her back for two seasons, so she must have something that they like other than the fact that she's cheap. And, you know, they did address that the $250 isn't 
entirely unreasonable, if, especially if they are a non-union theater company, uh, depending, because we don't know the details, right, of the size of this theater company. But the thing is, is she went and asked for a raise and they said no. So part of it is also that's as a company, that's their right. They don't necessarily have to give her more money. But I think that's also telling for uh, her that is that a place that she wants to keep on being? Um, they also say my gut feeling, which I'm intentionally saving for last, is that this is absolutely messed up. At three shows a year, this girl is making $750 annually. That's not even a month's rent in Chicago. And it takes a lot of time, energy, and long, exhausting days to be an assistant stage manager. I've made three times that much that she makes as an intern for a medium-sized company and been given free housing to boot. So it's totally egregious and unacceptable. And they also said someone needs to put pressure on this company and make it hurt. Yo, uh, I hear you're not paying this girl what she be does, huh? <laughs> hey, hey, uh, we're gonna, I, I we're want gonna, you to meet my friend uh, Nikki Knuckles over here. Uh, we're hey, from Chicago, Nikki Muckles, right? I like to beat things up, especially theater people that don't pay their people right. <laughs> Not in my I house. I respect the theater. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I mean, I, so let me let me just say this. Okay, yes. so first, the idea of saying that a assistant manager, stage manager, has no skills makes me doubt and question who's running this theater company. Because I know, and Michael, as you said, you know people who are stage managers, assistant stage managers, and the amount of talent it takes to be a stage manager is insane. You are literally the mother of the company. Like, you are organizing everything. You are the son of the galaxy. Everything revolves around you. It doesn't function without you. You run the show after rehearsals. You like stage managers call all the cues, make sure people are in place, make sure everybody's ready. In, in a in a professional theater environment, when a show goes up, the director is gone because he is usually a guest director and has gone to another job somewhere else. And the stage manager takes over and they run any kind of pickup rehearsals. They do a ton of things, making schedules, make sure people stick to union rules. If they have union rules or they're running by union rules, there is so much that a stage manager and an assistant stage manager does to sit there and say that you have no skills is insulting. And when when I read this from from Lynn, I got so mad. For her daughter, I was Daniel and I. We went. I think we talked for over an hour on the phone. Yeah, after we were, we we were this. both livid about this because we understand what it takes to be a stage manager, and to sit there and, and and then also just to go into the possible legalities of them telling that the pay was based on her age, which is <laughs> uh, completely illegal. Then I mean, get out, girl, and get out fast. Find something better because yeah. you deserve better than that completely i i'm so blessed as an actor to have worked with so many amazing stage managers and and teddy and mia are definitely like they're up in my echelon of stage managers that i've worked with uh but oh gosh a stage manager is the talking point between from the actors to the director to the production staff they attend every single production design meeting so not only are you there for rehearsal, but you have to be there for these production meetings and you're moving. You are one of the major parts that's moving the production along. And I get 
being in a th- running a theater company. I've done that. I, uh, Mia and I actually helped run our student run theater company at UC Davis. I've worked uh, for Theater Unleashed on the production side of things. It can be hard. Budgets can be tight. But the thing is, is if you're actually a company where you're able to pay people and you have someone that keeps coming back consistently doing amazing work and even overextending themselves, doing more than just being an assistant stage manager, being an, an, a stand-in choreographer at times, this, this person is so skilled at what they do. They have so much to offer this company. And the and fact so integral that- integral to the They're company. so integral to these shows because they, they do three shows and a musical. So if she's standing in for the choreographer- in their only musical that they do once a year, then she should be getting at least an assistant choreographer credit. But that's this, but that's that's neither here nor there. She, but she has no skills. But she has no skills, clearly. And you know, she also lives in Chicago, which is a huge theater town. So my immediate response is, get out of there. You know, you've gone it and asked for a raise. They said no, and they insulted you. You need to leave. So and and, and just and, something else that that Lynn sent us real quick. The light person, sound person, and choreographer makes six hundred dollars yeah. a show. Yeah, and so it is just absolutely shocking. And the thing is, it's like I'd understand. I wouldn't understand. I I would get it <laughs> if this was the only theater, and you lived in Vacaville, California. Maybe I'd get it, but. You live in Chicago, which is one of the big theater-making cities in the United States. There are so many better theater companies, even a smaller theater company, that will value you and pay you what you're worth. And that, that was the and second. One place of the things I know, Hamilton. Daniel, that yeah, and one of the things I know we talked about, Daniel, was also how very few people there are to be stage managers and assistant mm-hmm. stage managers. Truth. Truth. So. Um, you know, I'd love to get a stage manager eventually here on the podcast because it is such a hard job, but it's one that if you can do well, you can succeed so fast. Oh yeah, it's any kind of behind the scenes. This is this is a this is a tip for anybody out there. There the the behind the scenes part of production, lights, sound, uh, 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 scenic design, anything like that. Those are rare to find really good people at those. So if you know, acting is kind of slow or writing is kind of slow. If you have those skills, if you just need to make some money, you can find jobs very easily in those yeah. fields. To, yeah. to kind Every, of everyone's trying to get on the stage. Everyone's trying to get on the stage, but mm-hmm. very few people think about like being on the side of the stage or lighting the stage. And if you can do it and do it well, it is crazy how fast your your name goes around because you know actors and other casts work for different theater companies. And if their theater is looking for this type of position, bam, there you go. You're getting a referral there. So, right. But uh, thank you so look, much, Lynn, for your yeah. question. Uh, we, we will send you the full answers from Michael's friends. I'm still, I have a friend that I'm waiting still to hear back. When I do, I will give you their answer as well, just so you can get a lot of, a lot of different point of views on this. But uh, we really appreciate that's like that's a great question. Thank you so much. And, and, and please, anybody with questions like that or about the show, please feel free to send them and we'll talk about them just like we just did on the show. Yeah, uh, we, we love answering your questions. So uh, please send them to us. Uh, you can email us uh, them at to Hollywood Hustle podcast at gmail.com. 
Now we're going to go ahead now and do our hustle support statements. Uh, this yeah, is a last new thing week, that we oh, do here. Sorry. What's that? Oh, I was going to, I was going to do what you're just about to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is a new thing that we started doing in our last episode with Moon McMillan, where Daniel and I are going to share a support statement, whether, and it typically relates to the interview that we have on that episode, but it's something for you to think about and take with you as you move on through the week. So I'm going to go first. I just want to share with you something that I read in this week in a book called Peak Performance by Brad Stuhlberg and Steve Magnus. It's a book that focuses on creating systems to avoid burnout in one's productivity, whether that be creative, athletic, and everything in between. They say, in situations of stress, remind yourself this is your body's natural way of preparing for a challenge. Challenge yourself to view stress productively and even welcome it. You'll not only perform better, you'll also improve your health. So how you view something fundamentally changes how your body responds to it. Do you accept the challenge or do you resist it? Like Alexandra Boylan, and I shared this earlier, I too have struggled with making choices between whether a situation would benefit my acting career rather than taking it as an opportunity to grow and learn as an artist and a storyteller. So by resisting such challenges, your mind can create walls to fight against the career you so badly want to hold on to. But the important thing is take a breath, let go, and embrace the chance to learn something new by stepping up to the plate and say to yourself, I'm excited about this, whatever that activity may be. I'm excited about learning my lines, or I'm excited to stay up a couple extra hours to work on a poem or a scene that I've been writing. By declaring your positive intention about the task at hand, you'll build a bridge of trust with yourself and you'll know that you have what it takes to get the job done and that you'll come out of it stronger and smarter and happier. So to paraphrase Alexandra, don't hold your fist so tight on the dream that you're not receptive to life that is coming at you every day. So let go and start enjoying life. Oh, that's fantastic, man. That's a, that's a that's a that's a great statement to make. Yeah, I mean, this book Peak Performance guys, I highly highly recommend it, especially if you're finding any challenges in terms of having a balance between the creative and the administrative or what your what your passions are versus what you need to do. They they give so many strategies on how to be productive and make sure you're including uh time for rest and for stress and it's all amazing. Highly recommend it. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> me, me, me. How about you, buddy? You know, I've always believed that there are two kinds of addictions. A good addiction, usually called a habit, and a bad addiction. Sadly, most bad addictions stem from good habits. Working out can be a great habit to help improve your overall health and extend your life. But like anything, there is a line where working out can become an addiction that leads to problems in other parts of your life. Shutting yourself off from friends for the gym, constant depression and happiness with your body, and so much more. The same can be said about one's addiction to achieving a dream, such as finding a successful career in the entertainment industry. Ha ha ha. It's so easy to want to to want something so badly that the fun part of the passion and the drive slowly fades away because your addiction has pushed you to change you, to lose who you are. 
your happiness and worth begin to be based solely on your achievements and your failures. This is an easy trip. Uh, this is an easy trap to succumb to in LA and is a dangerous way to judge yourself, especially in a business and city where there will definitely be more failures before successes. Hustle, drive, and a strong work ethic are fantastic and are important qualities to possess in the pursuit of a dream, but one has to stay aware that your chosen profession is just one part of who you are. It does not make you who you are. Never lose sight of your life, of the real you, and don't be afraid to acknowledge and accept when the dream has become a nightmare, when the habit has become an addiction. Alexandra did a great job of realizing that and decided to get out. And just make sure you keep yourself healthy mentally while you're chasing this dream. I'll, I'll maybe in the, when I'm editing this, I'll just put like and a knowledge bomb sound like <laughs> knowledge bomb. <laughs> I love that. Uh, don't be afraid to acknowledge and accept when the dream has become a nightmare. Wow. Mm-hmm. That and it, it's that's scary. So that's true, a scary man. thought too yeah. to think about. I you mean, I've, I've, I've shared with you and our listeners on the podcast, there was a moment a couple of years ago where I felt like I had fallen out of love with acting, that I was doing the same motions, but not feeling like I was fully giving myself to the role. And that's right. when I threw myself into class. Like, let's go back to step one and just learn the craft, focus on that. And I was able to find my way back to why I love acting so much. So well, I know, that I know acknowledgement we've talked, is so important. But and yeah. I, I don't want to go too much into it because we've talked about it a lot on the show. But you know, it's important to have people around you that you can, when you're feeling those moments of depression or frustration, that you can call and just vent and just talk to and share those stories and and talk about how you get through them. And that's one of the things we love about this podcast, I think, is that we try to ask those questions of people. Like, how do you get through those tough times? You know, what do you do to make sure that you stay fresh, energized for this pursuit? Yeah, and we're, we're yeah. always there for you. You know, whether it, you listen to us here on the show or you engage with us on social media and everything, we are always there for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, that was good, yeah. man. Right. Um, <laughs> do you want to share with people how they can get in contact with us? Absolutely. You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's interview with Alexandra Boylan. We're on Facebook and Instagram at uh, Hollywood Hustle Podcast and on Twitter, L.A. Hustlecast. Uh, Michael can be reached at Michael Lutheran on both. And on Instagram, I am D Tuttle, T-U-T-T-E-L. And on Twitter, I am Daniel Tuttle, T-U-T-T-E-L. Uh, and make sure you can always email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And you can DM us on any of those other platforms as well, if that's easier. Uh, Also, um, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you like, share and tweet about this episode and leave a review on iTunes, please, because that just helps us become more visible on iTunes. So more people find it and we can grow. Yay. Also, this last Monday, we released our first side hustle episode. Every Monday, we'll be releasing short previews featuring several clips of our upcoming guest uh, for the next episode. We hope that this will not only build the excitement and interest in the newest episodes, but also give those who 
maybe have trouble finding the time to listen to our hour-long episodes, a chance to still absorb some of the knowledge offered in the episode. So make sure you check out these side hustles every Monday. And last week, we've also shared that we've been talking now for months about how we've been bringing you incredible voices, and we've got some really exciting plans for the future of this podcast. But we rely on the support of listeners like you to help us expand and grow. So how can you help? Share this episode with your friends, family, and fellow artists and community who are looking for some inspiration to kickstart their journey. If you've been listening to us for a while and want to give to The Hustle, visit our website and on the bottom of our homepage, you'll see a PayPal button that will allow you to give a one-time or a recurring monthly contribution that all goes back into growing and expanding not only the show, but the entire Hollywood Hustle brand. Absolutely. And and finally, uh, a huge friend of the show and of ours, Beth Ryan, a fantastic casting, a fantastic casting coordinator, has recently launched a Kickstarter for an amazing and emotional documentary called Feeling Seen, a documentary exploring how film can influence society's view on a particular group of people and more. Beth Ryan interviews those those who, like herself, for years only saw that a woman loving another woman means you're a degenerate, gross or a criminal. She looks to examine how art can influence acceptance and show that love is love and that all love and all people are just that, people. We we implore you to click the link in the description of this episode and check out their preview and donate whatever you can to their Kickstarter and this wonderful film. And they have some really great rewards, so definitely check this out. Yeah, Beth is a big friend of the show. She's actually going to be coming up here as a guest of ours after Alexandra Boylan. So you'll be hearing a lot more from her soon. So please know we fully, fully endorse, um, you know, any type of contributions you can make towards uh, Beth's film. It is incredible. Me and Daniel just broke down in tears uh, when she showed us. uh, Just watching the sizzle drill. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh man. But so next week we're back for a second half of Daniel's amazing conversation with Alexandra Boylan. We continue Alexandra's journey from Los Angeles to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll go behind the scenes of how Alexandra began making her own films. From a horror-based film to finding a niche in faith-based storytelling, you're going to hear the nitty-gritty of what makes a film. True grit, faith in the process, and amazing posters. (laughs) So all that and more will be in store for you next week. Watch your feeds for the side hustle of this conversation dropping on Monday, April 30th, and then the full episode Tuesday, May 1st. And with that, Daniel, that is episode 53. Woo, 53. This is is so much fun. I love doing this. Yeah. Right? Ah, why do we have to go to work and do things? Let's start doing this at 6 a.m. in the morning. The earlier, uh, the better. My roommates, and I'm sure your wife and three-year-old boy would absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah. You're, this podcast is getting better for our family. Yeah, and <laughs> and our voices will sound hey, very guys. fresh, I'm sure. Welcome to the outro for episode 53. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to talk to you, Daniel. <laughs> I'm so pumped. I'm so excited and pumped to talk about Alex Shadow Boylan and her interview. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're starting to get silly. So that means we're we pretty go. much wrapped for this episode. We got to go. But we hope you have a great, great week. Remember Please. to 
Yes, definitely. And remember to definitely acknowledge those moments when you're stressed or you're feeling passionate. It's amazing, this roller coaster of a career that we're on as artists and as entrepreneurs and dreamers. It's amazing. Just remember to be kind to yourself, to let your dreams inspire you, but to also take life in as it happens. And always remember to keep up the hustle. Today's interview was hosted by Daniel Tuttle and produced by Michael Lutheran. Arnobi Day is our social media and community manager, and Gordon Meacham is our associate producer. Mike Tobias edited our website. For more information, visit our website, www.hollywoodhustlepodcast.com. Thank you.